I mean, it's Philippians 2, um, to continue on with a not-quite-Christmas service. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross." Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Only three days until Christmas. What goes through your mind when I say that? Three, only three days until Christmas. My guess is, if we went around the room and I surveyed all of our responses to hearing only three days until Christmas, we would get different responses. Some of you could, could honestly say, when I heard Pastor Matt say only three days till Christmas, it filled me with the joy and the wonder and the hope of Christ. Some of you could honestly say that's how you feel. The rest of you would be annoyed by the people who feel that way when they hear there's only three days left until Christmas because joy and hope and peace are not the only kinds of feelings that come up when you say there's only three days until Christmas because Christmas brings other things with it as well. Some of you... When I say only three days till Christmas, if you're honest, the first feeling you might feel is, is loss or loneliness. Like Christmas is not going to be the same this year without mom, dad, spouse, whomever. Some of you might feel stressed when I say there's only three days until Christmas. You might be making the list of all the things you have to buy wrap, cook. I saw one mom uh, posted this week, uh, you know, Christmas isn't nearly as magical when you are the one responsible for providing all the magic. Uh, The financial strain that can come with Christmas can be a real thing. And for many people, the idea that we're close to Christmas brings anxiety because Christmas Christmas will bring conflict, disagreement. I'm going to see that family member again that I fight with every year. There's long-standing rifts in families and we're, we're forced to be together. Or your, your niece, your sure, is going to show up wearing the impeach Trump t-shirt and you know your brother-in-law is going to be handing out signed copies of Don Jr.'s new book and they're going to be at the same table. We all know 
as Christians, those of us who know the Lord, we know the reason for the season. We know what we're supposed to be focused on. But boy, is it hard to keep our hearts and our minds where they ought to be. This is my ninth Christmas sermon here at Imperial Burian. And I don't know if you've ever counted, but after about six Christmas sermons, you run out of wise men and shepherds and angels and Joseph and Mary stories. So this year, I want to share with you kind of a non-traditional Christmas passage. Jason just read it for us out of Philippians chapter 2. In the middle of that passage, the Apostle Paul, he really, he breaks into a poem. He writes this beautiful poem that is about what Christmas is about. It's about the incarnation, which is the fancy word term for when God became a human being, a baby that grew into a man. He was 100% human while being fully God the whole time. That's the incarnation. And so what I want to do this morning is we're going to start halfway through the passage Jason read, and we're going to look at that poem about the incarnation, because that's what Christmas is about, celebrating the incarnation. Then we're going to back up to the beginning of that chapter of Philippians 2 and see why Paul taught the Philippians about the incarnation when he taught the Philippians about the incarnation. It's about getting along. It's about handling conflict. And maybe God ordained that this incarnation Christmas passage would go in just such a place. We're going to start in verse 6 of Philippians chapter 2 where Paul, he really does break into this poem. And he starts this way. He's talking about Jesus. And he says, "Who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto. What does it mean that Jesus existed in the form of God? Paul really clearly in this verse lets us know Jesus is God. And I want you to see that this morning. First way he does that is this is past tense right here. You see that? He's talking about Jesus coming to earth as a baby. But he says before Jesus came to earth as a man, he had already existed previously. That right there makes Jesus different than every person who has ever lived. I don't know what you've thought about this. Sometimes you can you know, get a, a card or something if, when someone has a baby about how God has sent one of his little angels to earth or some kind of half loony thing like that. Listen, the Bible doesn't teach that we all, like Jesus has this, God has this storehouse of pre-incarnate human beings and he takes one off the shelf and puts it in mommy's tummy. That's not how this works. Some of the cults teach that. This verse, I believe, is why. Because if you don't want Jesus to be God, if you don't teach that Jesus is fully God, What do you do with a verse that says he already existed before he became human? One thing you can do is say, well, we all did. But that's not true. Jesus existed as God from eternity past. He had always been. And he existed, Paul tells us, in the form 
of God. Now, what does it mean that he existed in the form of God? It can't mean the shape of God. The Bible's really clear. God the Father doesn't have a shape. He's the invisible God. He is omnipresent. He's everywhere present at the same time. He's here right now. We can't see any shape. The form of God, this word right here, English word form, here's what it means. Something, the form of something means what you see on the outside matches the reality of what is on the inside. So that Jesus existed in the form of God means if you could have seen Jesus before he was born in the manger, if you could have seen him as he existed in his pre-incarnate state, you wouldn't have had to wonder whether or not he was God. Because he existed in the form of God. His outward appearance matched the reality of who and what he is, which is God. Really, really clearly, Paul saying Jesus is God. He existed he looked like God, but then when he was born, Paul says, as a man, he did not regard his equality with God as a thing to be grasped or held on to. Here's what Paul means there. There was never one second that Jesus wasn't fully God. But when Jesus was a man, he he decided that he wouldn't use his godness, his divinity, for his own advantage. Like the way you or I would, if we could. Jesus, uh, he didn't hold on to, for his own advantage, his equality um, with God. This verse right here. Here's another way, just in general, we know that Paul is calling Jesus God. This could only be said about someone who's actually God. It's ridiculous if Jesus isn't God. Here's what I mean. If anyone else said something like this about himself or herself, you'd think they were nuts. Check this out. If I said to you, you know, even though I am equal to God, I just, I'm not going to use it to my advantage. I'm going to try to keep it secret. I mean, I'm, I know me and God are equals. I just don't want to brag about it or anything. What would you think about me? You'd think I'm a crazy person, and you'd be right. That's what Paul says about Jesus. He's completely equal with God. He just didn't use it to his own advantage. Instead, verse 7, Paul says he emptied himself. There was never a second Jesus stopped being God. God can't stop being God any more than you could stop being a human being. But temporarily and voluntarily, Jesus gave up the independent use of his, some of his divine attributes. Was Jesus miraculously powerful when he was a man? Absolutely. We just finished the book of Matthew. He did lots of miracles in that book we just studied. But he only did the miracles God wanted him to do when God wanted him to do them. And he never did them for his own benefit. In fact, as we've, if you've read back through the book of Matthew, how many miracles of Jesus could you find that Jesus did just to make life easier for Jesus? 
There aren't any. That was the temptation of Jesus, by the way. If you go to Matthew chapter 4, Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness. And the whole temptation is trying to get Jesus to do what Paul says in these two verses he never did. Use your miraculous power for your own benefit. Why are you so hungry? Take these rocks, turn them into bread, make yourself a sandwich, and get on with it. Throw yourself off of this high place. Force God to take care of you the way you want to. But Jesus, as Warren Wearsby characterized the the temptation, Satan wanted Jesus to say, my will be done. Satan would always and only say, thy will be done. So Jesus emptied himself of some of his divine attributes And he took on the form of a slave by looking like other men, by sharing in human nature, by being uh, made a full person. You want to know what Jesus looked like during his lifetime? I can't draw you a picture, but I know he looked like the average first century Jewish dude. He looked like a guy. He was fully God the whole time, but there was no glow, there was no halo And here's our word form again. Jesus took on the form of a slave. That word form means the same thing. The outward appearance matched what the reality was inside. So Jesus didn't just look like a slave. He actually became a slave, a servant. Who did Jesus serve? First and foremost, he was a servant of God. He served God And then God led him to serve all of us. So far, in two verses, do you catch how amazing the incarnation is? Here's what Paul has said so far. The one who had always existed and looked like what he was, which is the creator of the universe. He's equal with God. You can't be equal with God without being actually God. The one who created everything from nothing. Set that aside, and he became fully human, a regular-looking person. And then he made himself a slave. That's why Paul says next what he says next. He humbled himself. Boy, I'll say, he humbled himself. Himself. This time of year, Christmas time, we talk a lot about Jesus' humility, his humble beginnings. And we have a lot of nativity scenes around. And when we talk about Jesus' humble beginnings, usually what we're talking about is Jesus was humble because he was born in a he's born in a stable and he was laid in a manger, and his parents were poor. That's what made him humble, right? Well, those things are all true, but listen, if Jesus had been born John D. Rockefeller or Michael Jordan or the most famous, wealthiest, handsomest, most humanly powerful person ever made, he still would have been taking an infinitely big step down from what he had been. Jesus wasn't humble just because he was born a poor family. Jesus was humble because he became one of which he had created. 
Jesus wasn't created. He was creator, but he became one of the race that he had created. I was trying to think, how can I, how can I put this in our, in our language? Have you ever created something that you were proud of? It could be something you baked or cooked or wrote or painted or sculpted. Maybe you built houses that you thought were fantastic. I don't care how great of something. Let's say you sculpted something like Michelangelo sculpted. You ever see that guy's sculpture? It's, it's unbelievable that that used to be a hunk of marble. It still is. It looks miraculous. But if you could sculpt something like that, and I said, man, that is really awesome. Would you like to become that sculpture? What would you say? You would say, what are you nuts? I don't want to become a sculpture. I like it. I'm proud of it. But I'm a human being. That's what Jesus did. He created human beings and then he humbled himself by becoming one of that which he had created. Like I made a birdhouse one time when I was, when I was little. I was really proud of it. I don't want to be a birdhouse. And then not only did he become one of that race which he had created, he became the most obedient, humble example of that race God ever allowed to walk on the earth. He became, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. These two concepts go together, humbled and obedient. It is impossible to be humble without being obedient to God. The opposite of humility, the opposite of being humble is being what? Prideful. Prideful means I do things for me, to get me noticed, to build me up, to make people think I'm great and impressive and awesome. When I'm humble, I do things for others. I'm others-focused. But I cannot be truly humble if I am not obedient to God. Do you know why? Because no matter what I do for you, if I am not doing it out of obedience to God and to glorify Him, I'm still doing it for selfish reasons. I'm still doing nice things for others so that you notice how awesome I am, how kind I am, how generous I am. Maybe I'm doing it so God will let me into heaven someday because I believe my good works have to out, outpace my, my sins. And so if I can do enough good things, maybe God will let me into the good place when I die. Those are, those are selfish reasons. That's not humble. Real humility has to be linked with obedience. And here's why Jesus is the exa human example of humility. Because he placed himself, even though he was equal with the Father, he placed himself under the Father as a, as a slave and said, I, I give my will completely to you. I'll be completely obedient. Anytime we let God call the shots, guess what kind of things God will ask us to do? He will always ask us to do stuff for other people that makes him look good. And that's humility that leads to obedience. Jesus was willing to do that even though his obedience 
would get him crucified on a cross, tortured, humiliated, and executed by the people he had created. Now, was all that stuff that happened to Jesus in his life worth it? To Jesus. To you and me, it's absolutely worth it, worth it because we're hopeless without it, right? But if you could go ask Jesus today, Jesus, was it all worth it? The humbling yourself and going through life, you know, being in diapers, um, being on the run for a while with your family, being poor, being rejected, being rejected by your own family. The loneliness, um, the rejection, the doubt, the torture, the exit. Was it worth it? What would Jesus say? He'd say, absolutely. Obedience, humility that leads to obedience is always, 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 always worth it in the end. Paul tells us that. Paul says the next, the rest of this poem. Paul says, as a result, as a result of what? As a result of Jesus' humble obedience, God exalted Jesus. God gave Jesus the name that is above every name. Why? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's what Paul said. Jesus was... uh, infinite God who became man because he was humble and his humility led him to be obedient and vice versa. And it was all worth it. You know why? Because he was the perfect, humble, obedient person. In eternity, he's going to get one thing he didn't have in his pre-incarnate existence. In his pre-incarnate existence, he could never say, I was the perfect human being on earth. And now he can. Because he was the perfect example of humility and obedience, God said, I'm going to make sure every person who has ever lived bows before you and confesses basically this, that Jesus is the greatest human that ever lived. He's the king of kings. That's a way of saying the greatest human ever. He's the Lord of lords. That's a way of saying the greatest human ever. And everyone is going to admit that was true. Those who believed that while they were alive, God will save into eternal life. You know why? So that the King of Kings has someone to reign over for all of eternity. And all of that will glorify God's plan to be gracious and merciful. That's the incarnation. That's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why... God, that's what Jesus was doing when he allowed himself to be born, a little baby, in a stable, laid in a manger, wrapped in swaddling cloths. So that he could glorify God through humble obedience. Get it? Now. Now we're going to back up and briefly look at the beginning of this chapter. Do you know why Paul wrote that poem? When Paul wrote that poem? Paul breaks into this poem that's about the nativity and Jesus' life and why he would come to earth the way he did. And he told us that poem using Jesus as an example for how you and I should get along with other people. It's true. 
Let's check it out. So now we're going back before the poem. Philippians chapter 2 begins this way. Paul says, there are four things that we have as Christians that we get from Christ. They're underlined on the, on the screen. I know in English it can seem like maybe we don't have these things because he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, just know he's saying this. If there's any encouragement in Christ, and there absolutely is. Okay, so these are sure things. Paul says, there are four things we have as Christians that we all need. Here they are. If there's any encouragement in Christ, comfort provided by love, fellowship in the Spirit, and any, this is a two-for-one, affection or mercy. Your, your Bible might call it tenderness or, or kindness. Paul says, you have, Philippians, those four things because of Jesus, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer. How so? Could we go around the room if I said, hey, could you share with me, how are you encouraged because of what Jesus did for you? Could you, could you answer, could we get some, some testimonies about how you're encouraged because of Jesus? Here's what I would say. I'd say I'm encouraged by Jesus because I know my eternity is secure. That's very encouraging to me. I'm encouraged that there will be no condemnation left for me when I stand before God because of what Jesus did for me. I'm encouraged that no matter how much uh, this world hurts me, it's going to be temporary and it's going to go away and I'm going to have the happy ending that the Burks told us about during the Advent time. That's encouraging to me. The next one, do you have any comfort that's provided by the love of Christ? Are you comforted by Jesus? I am. Here's what I would, I'm comforted knowing that the pain's temporary. I'm comforted with this thought. When I look at the cross and I think of what God the Father put his son in whom he was well pleased through. Jesus never did anything wrong, but Jesus had the worst ending of his life of anyone who ever lived. You know why that comforts me? When life goes bad for me, I don't have to get stuck thinking, well, apparently God hates me now. God's done with me. God's punishing me. No, he will walk with me through what I'm going through. That's comforting to me. We get fellowship in the Spirit because of what Jesus did for us. We all have fellowship needs. We need to be friends. The Bible tells us through faith in Jesus Christ, we can be friends with God. And then he gives us a fellowship of people who have these same things in common to do life with. And how about affection or mercy or kindness or tenderness, your Bible might say, might be my favorite one on the list. God destroyed his son so he could be tender toward you. Now, Paul intentionally starts this chapter by telling the Philippians about these four things they have in Christ. You know, every single one of us need those four things. You have a need as a human being to be encouraged, to be comforted, 
to have fellowship, friendship, and to be uh, and to have affection, kindness, tenderness. You need those four things. But this world is broken. And this world does not give those things consistently or even terribly well. And you want to know the problem that we have as human beings, even as Christians? Our hearts are convinced. They, our hearts know they need those four things, but our hearts think, I can get that from the people and from the circumstances around my life. If you think about this, you want to know where conflicts come from? If you boil them down and distill them, you can find conflicts coming from this. We tend to try to get our encouragement, comfort, fellowship, and affection from our circumstances and from the people around us. And when those things get threatened by our circumstances and the people around us, we lose our minds. Because I know I need encouragement and comfort and friendship and tenderness. And if you try to take that from me, we're going to have problems. So here's what we start to do. I know I need encouragement. So I, instead of being obedient, to, humbly obedient to God, I start to try to think what you want and try to be what you want so that you will encourage me. I know I need fellowship, so I want to be what this crowd, this group, those people want to see because then I'll feel like I belong. And if I have to do things that God would not want me to do, I guess I'm going to have to do it because I need encouragement and comfort and fellowship and tenderness. And if I think all those things come from the world, that's where I'll have to get it. Or how about this? Maybe I get my comfort and I get my encouragement from what I have. From, from my bank account, from my retirement account, from, from, from what I drive, from where I live, from some of those things. And then everything quickly becomes a competition because if you have more than me, I don't feel encouraged and comforted. So now I hate you because you have made me feel you've taken away my encouragement, my comfort. Or there's someone in your family who threatens to be in the spot you want to be with mom or dad or threatens the part of the inheritance you want to have. And if that's where I get my comfort and my encouragement, I can't cope. But Paul tells us, you have the encouragement, the comfort, the fellowship, and the tenderness that comes from God through Jesus Christ. You have more of those things than you could ever hold or spend if you get it from the right place. Therefore, Paul says, verse 2, make me really happy and get along. That's what he says. Make me really happy, complete my joy, and be of the same mind, have the same love, be united in spirit, have one purpose. Get along, church, at Philippi. You've got 
more encouragement, comfort, fellowship, and tenderness than you could ever hold. No one can threaten them. Do that instead of verse 3, instead of being motivated by selfish ambition and vanity. Each of you should in humility be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. Do you know why human beings get motivated by selfish ambition and vanity? You know why? Because we try to get our encouragement, comfort, fellowship, and affection from our circumstances and the people in this world. And if that's where I get those feelings, those needs met, I can't think about what's best for you. I got to keep working on what's best for me, which is what will get me encouraged, what will make me comfortable, what will make me feel like I belong, and what will make me feel like someone is tender toward me. When those things are filled infinitely from the cup of Christ, that allows me to not be motivated by selfish ambition or vanity. I don't have to take those things from you or compete with you for those four things. I can give and give and give and give. Whether you recognize or return or give me anything out of the transaction at all. Because I am no longer threatened by your discouragement, by your lack of affection, or by you not thinking I belong. It's almost a cheat code for doing life in a broken world. I fill my cup from Christ's spigot. He encourages me and comforts me, and and, and I have his fellowship and affection. And then I treat one another, I I try to treat you as if you are more important than me. Remember, the next thing he's going to do is, I just want you to do what Jesus did. This is how Jesus lived. Question. Did Jesus think other people were actually more important than him, more valuable than him, better than him? Jesus created them. Jesus is God. He's infinitely higher. But did he treat other people as if they were more valuable than him? Yes. That's that's an important distinction to make. Otherwise, I will only treat the people as more important than me that I can convince myself are actually more important than me. And these other people that I have this list of why they're actually worse than me, I don't have to treat them good. I treat people as if they were more important than me. How can I pull that off? Because I already have more encouragement, comfort, fellowship, and affection than I than this old heart can hold. Then, the, then Paul says, you should have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had. And he shares that poem about the incarnation we just shared. Folks, brothers and sisters, church, This is what unlocks our ability to be givers rather than takers from this world. Now, should we encourage one another? Should we comfort one another? Should we fellowship with one another? Should we be tender toward one another? Absolutely. But if all of us have to try and get more of that than we give we're going to be in real trouble. We're bankrupt. 
We get those things filled from Christ, and then I can give that to you whether you return it or not. And if this were a place that more and more Imperial Berean Church, that it was full of people who gave more encouragement than they required, who provided more comfort than they asked for, who, who invited more fellowship than was returned, and who were kinder than those around. But before long, other people in southwest Nebraska would be like, man, I don't know what it is about that place, but it feels pretty good to belong there. That's what Jesus was doing when he came to earth as that infant. He was being humbly obedient to give other people encouragement and comfort and fellowship and tenderness. Even though he was far infinitely greater than all of us. So when you head out for Christmas, I'm not telling you you have to be in love with that brother-in-law you really can't stand. But I'm telling you the Lord would be honored. And you might have a chance to really make him look good. If you could treat that person as if they were more important than you. How could you encourage? How could you comfort? How could you fellowship with? How could you treat tenderly? Those folks, not because you get anything back, you probably won't. You'll probably get attacked the first five or six or 10 or 12 times. But because it might glorify the Father and because that's exactly the way our Lord Jesus lived and Paul used him as our example. Pray with me and we'll close. Father God, I thank you so much for coming to earth to be born, to live, to be a perfect example and to die for our sins. We are encouraged by what you've done for us. We are, we're, we're grateful for the fellowship and the, and the tenderness with which you treat us. God, help us to be providers of that to one another and to those who are outside community of faith. We love you, God. Bless uh, this Christmas season. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.